And it was two weeks into my trip that the Valley Fire happened. And one of my friends from that community came up to me and he said, Alicia, I think Harbin burned down last night. And I, I was like, what? And he, the look on his face made me realize he was serious. And he said, Alicia, I'm serious. You got to get online. And I ran. I ran to the computer and I saw that it was true. Experts call it a monstrous fire of historic proportions. A stunning number of homes lost in the Valley Fire in tonight. The governor is. I knew there was a fire. I didn't know if I had a home still. I had just restocked my merchandise, all the clothing for the whole next several months or year or whatever was in there. And then after four days, my um, I had a roommate. She was able to confirm that the house had been burned down. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. Today, we'll be talking to Alicia, somatic coach and creator of the clothing brand, The Blonde Vagabond. You just heard her describe the moment when she realized a firestorm destroyed her home in Northern California. This is obviously incredibly hard to process and overcome, but Alicia had a few things on her side. First, she has unmatched resilience. Second, this actually isn't the first time she's lived without a physical home. In a journey to find community, she left the white picket fence of Orange County for Rishikesh, India, the Andaman Islands, Indonesia, and Brazil. These new cultural terrains allowed her to create a clothing brand that aligned and fueled how she wanted to explore the world and explore her spirituality. Before Alicia embarked on her spiritual voyage around the world, she grew up as a Christian kid in Orange County. For a while, life felt pretty stable. Then she began to question all that she knew. So I was raised in a pretty devout Christian household. It really created a beautiful home environment for me. I'd say I was raised in Orange County at a pretty standard Orange County lifestyle, I'd say, growing up. And ultimately, at some point in my journey with Christianity, I really wasn't able to kind of embrace all of the more dogmatic elements of that religion. When did you start questioning it? So that was at 16 years old, I left the church formally. Like I was in a youth group, you know, and I basically I went to them and I said, hey, look, I'm just not a Christian in the same way anymore. Was that hard to do? Like, how, how did you come to that decision to actually say that? It seems like a tough decision or was it for you? It was absolutely very tough, um, especially because, you know, I love my parents so much and they raised me with real love and they raised me with real Christian values. So there was a little bit of a, a mix in there to, to discern because part of it was real. Part of it was beautiful, like the values within spirituality, the teachings of Jesus, very beautiful. But then there were um, dogmatic, like historical, you know, church traditions that I just couldn't quite completely wrap my brain around. That in combination with, you know, wanting to explore my, my sexuality as a teenager, 
that made me really realize, okay, I, I'm not, I can't be in integrity and be fully a part of this anymore. It was a hard decision, but it was definitely the right decision for me, like 100%. But it, it ended up leaving a gaping hole for many years after that, where I, I didn't know what to fill that spiritual hole with. Because the church not only offers spirituality, it offers a spiritual community. And so I no longer had the community. I no longer had like um, a reference points for how to understand God or however you want to call it, spirit. It did leave a hole for some years. You know, there's a funny thing I've learned. I sometimes work with a method called family constellations, and there's a teaching in family constellations methods where if you don't feel guilt, you haven't broken free from your conditioning yet. So there was a period where I did feel a lot of guilt for leaving the church, deciding to step away from those things. And I threw myself into friendships. I threw myself into explorations and having fun. And I, I felt my life was full. Actually, there was a period when I was living in downtown LA with a bunch of girlfriends. We were having so much fun. We were young 20s, going out, dating, and, and just having so much fun. But about once a month, I'd get this very deep ache, like kind of a soul ache. And I used to pray, and I just said, God, if you're real, you have to find me, <laughs> because I don't know if I'm going to find you here like this. And you got you to gotta inspire me again and, and help me. Was there something about the way that you were living that felt like spiritually vapid in some way or, yes. <laughs> or like why were you, why do you think you were longing for that? Something about the lifestyle certainly wasn't filling this hole. And I remember there was one especially strong experience that I had, which really kind of sealed it for me when for some reason we had, we got our hands, my group of girlfriends, we got our hands on a, a limo and there was maybe 10 or 12 of us <laughs> and we we're just going to go drive around in this limo. And I knew that a bunch of the girls, the plan for the night was to basically go to someone's house and do blow or cocaine all night. And, you know, you're young, people do these things. And so I didn't want to do it. I just didn't feel like it. And I didn't want to have to do what I didn't feel like doing. And by the end of the night, um, I originally, a friend said she'd go home with me. And at the end of the night, she she changed her mind. And so I, I left by, by myself and I, I kind of broke away from this limo full of like this big party. It just didn't feel like me. And I called a taxi and that taxi driver, I'll never forget him. His name was Luis. And he ended up talking to me about meditation on that drive back home. And then he pulled over outside my apartment. And then we talked about meditation for like 30, 40 minutes. And at the end of it, he said, I don't charge for my lessons. And he didn't charge me for that taxi ride. Life can take unexpected turns. You can think you're driving to one part of the city and then suddenly you're somewhere unrecognizable. The friend you made at the party last week, the new colleague in the office, even that stranger at the checkout line, they all have a potential to affect our world in the most surprising ways. Which is why it's so important to be open to change when meeting someone new. For Alicia, her unexpected turn took the form of a taxi driver. That conversation on meditation cracked open that car window of Alicia's life that had never been open before. 
She could gaze out at her surroundings passing her by, maybe not able to step out and explore it on her own two feet just yet, but now she knew it was out there. It stoked her desire to experience more of these moments, to drive beyond familiar neighborhoods of religion or partying and discover a life that truly felt right to her. It's important to realize not every community we walk into is right for us. Maybe we don't understand their values or maybe we don't find their lifestyle appealing or maybe it simply doesn't feel like home. And if that's the case, I think we should follow Alicia's example. Look to the next street and move on. What did that set off in you? Did you continue that practice? Did it feel isolated in that moment? Yeah, I hadn't yet started any meditation. I had done some yoga, but that was kind of a glimmer of light that there was a world outside of the world I was being exposed to. A world outside of the vapidness or the spirituality that you had grown up knowing? The sort of vapid kind of party scene. And it felt almost like an angel, you know, like an angel stepped in and was like, look, you're not alone. You're not alone and there's a lot out there still for you to explore and discover. And you might do this alone. You might not have your core group of girlfriends with you on this part of the journey. And so there was a certain turning point when I finally decided to, the way I usually put it is leave the rat race. Can you tell me like a, like a moment that you felt contributed most to that, that leaving? Like, was there a moment of realization that like, I am going to do this. And can you tell me what that looked like? Absolutely. I remember exactly. <laughs> I was chatting with a girlfriend of mine, a very close friend named Nicole, and telling her how, you know, whenever I'm really asked during that period, whenever I asked myself, what, what did I want to do? I, I wanted to travel. That was the inner longing that I had. I was trying to follow the steps that made sense in society. Like I, I worked at a talent agency, which is supposed to lead to other jobs in entertainment, which is supposed to lead to something else. I had just come from, you know, 13 plus years of schooling. And so everything always led to something else. There was like a laid out map. So to break away from that felt so big and scary, but something in me just had this desire to just to take a leap, to try it. So I was telling my friend about this and she looked at me and she said, Alicia, you know, you're always talking about this big trip you want to do. Why don't you just do it? <laughs> it was so simple. Yeah, that advice like seems so straightforward. But when you hear it from someone else, it's like, huh. Maybe I should. It was literally like, if I don't do it now, I'm going to wake up at 40, 50 and wonder what would have happened if I did, if I had gone on that trip. The major leap was the transition from doing what's clear, what seems laid out, what seems to make sense to the mind to what is my embodied experience asking for? What is my soul? What is this other thing, this other part of me, which I can't quite necessarily quantify, but what is it? What is it asking me to do? And it was asking me to just go on this trip. <laughs> so I had no idea what was in store. After my friend kind of gave me this kick in the butt, I ended up moving back to my parents' house and then working two different waitressing jobs and saved a nice chunk of change to travel with. So I decided, okay, I'll do a six month backpacking trip. I'll start in India and I'll end in Indonesia. What year is this? Oh, by the way. 2010. February of 2010 is when I left. So a bit before that, you had created your blog. Could you tell me about how that 
actually was created and why? I felt that I was about to go on a big journey and I wanted to be able to share my journey along the way with my family and my friends. And back then blogging was a kind of new and exciting thing. And so I spent about two or three weeks brainstorming ideas for a name and it ended up becoming Blonde Vagabond. My hair color is blonde and I'm about to become a vagabond. So uh, I bought blondevagabond.com and at first it was just a blog. You know, I was sharing pictures of puppies and, you know, just adventures on my travels and stuff like that. So let's talk about getting into that journey. So what is your experience getting on the plane, traveling over there? Like, tell me about what's going through your mind as this trip that you feel you have to take is actually starting. You know, I was 25 and I really had no idea what I was getting myself into. I did have fear. I remember on the, the flight that somebody on the plane kind of freaked out and had maybe a mental break or something. They started screaming a bunch of things and they were speaking in another language. I understood they said something about Pakistan. I knew we were on a flight to India. I know there's a tension between those countries. And then the pilot got on and asked for a, uh, if there was a psychiatrist or a medical doctor on the, on the flight. So I knew it was something kind of serious. And that kind of put me in a state of panic. Yeah, it's like feels like an omen, right? Like your like brain is just so open to anything going wrong or going right. Like you're just like a, a sponge and then you have this almost omen like, oh no. Am, am I making the right decision? Like that's that's a, that's a scary thing to start off this trip. <laughs> it, it really was. It was a really like unfriendly beginning. But I remember there was a girl next to me that was calm and it's like, okay, she's there. She seems on her own and she's calm. And so I, I just, you know what I actually did, which I learned later was a yoga asana. I went into the bathroom of the airplane because I was really in a panic. You know, I, I had a tendency sometimes to panic attacks previously. So it was like really putting me in a state of fear. And here I am going to this country by myself. So I went into the bathroom and I just leaned over and touched my toes. And I didn't even know what I was doing. I learned later it was Padahastasana, which can help its standing forward bend. And that can help relieve anxiety, stress, tension. When flying towards New Horizons, we're bound to encounter some turbulence. Our doubts flare at every bump. We look for omens in the clouds telling us to turn back. The person who yelled on the plane, that was not something within Alicia's control. But the intrusive thoughts like, I made a mistake, this won't end well, those were. To regain control of a situation, we must first regain control of ourselves. While we might not always have power over the outcome, we can choose how we can react to our situation. Instead of fixating on the source of anxiety, try doing a yoga pose or a breathing exercise. Go running, write about your feelings. For Alicia, Padhastasana, the stretch she described, helped her defeat anxiety. Find something that works for you. Setbacks are inevitable, but the way we deal with them can change. And when that happens, we don't just change our habits, we grow as human beings. What was like the hardest thing about, you know, those first couple weeks, couple months getting adjusted to this new country? 
Yeah, India is, is can be a real shock to the system, especially if you're used to more Western contexts. It, instantly in India, there was a rawness there that was intimidating but exciting. So it's overwhelmingly in your all of your senses. You have smells you've never smelled before, from the best smells you could ever smell to some of the worst smells you could ever smell. And then the things you're seeing are just unbelievable. Giant cows and bulls and monkeys walking alongside the street with people. And so the sensory overwhelm was something to deal with. But I think one of the, the biggest growing experiences that I had in those first months was learning to throw away my guidebook. At first, I wanted to see everything that was in the guidebook. So I started kind of checking things off and I noticed I wasn't really enjoying myself. It wasn't, it felt like task oriented, like work. And then I decided to do that same thing again, which had worked for me before, which was to stop and just feel, what do I feel like doing? And I felt like I wanted to try to discover a place called the Andaman Islands. And so I left the guidebook behind and I bought a plane flight to um, Andaman Islands to spend some weeks there scuba diving and hanging out with a really cool international crowd. It, it was really very pristine and relatively untouched. That was back in 2010. And then I discovered scuba diving and I started scuba diving there. And we went to even smaller islands within the Andaman Islands. And I just remember seeing some of the most beautiful scenes of my life. I remember one time I was hanging out with some dive instructors and they said, let's do a night dive. As we were emerging from the night dive, the, my instructor who was there with me was waving his hand in the water to ignite all the phytoplankton. And then when we came up, we broke the surface. It was already a starry night sky. So beneath and above the surface matched the stars and the phytoplankton. I mean, it was just these really stunning, like jaw-dropping experiences. When I was in the Andaman Islands, I again felt that calling to go to Rishikesh. And it was pretty random. I'd heard about that city from other friends. I'd never been there. I didn't really know much about it. But I again felt a very strong call this time. It was like, go to Rishikesh. I flew to Chennai and then I took like what ended up being 40 hours of trains to get to Delhi. Oh my God. Yeah. And then in Delhi, I soon realized what I was getting myself into, which was the 2010 Kumbh Mela in Rishikesh. And what is that? Okay. The Kumbh Mela is the largest gathering of human beings on the planet. And it's a religious gathering. It's a um, spiritual gathering. So you'll have sadhus and babas from all different sects in India. So basically, it's a very intense experience. <laughs> you can imagine they say... I think 50 million people came through this tiny train station in Hardwar during that year. Wow. Yeah. Wow. The, the devotion and the desperation to get there during these holy bathing days is intense. And I didn't know I was heading there right in the height <laughs> of this Kumbh Mela of 2010. I mean, it was totally wild. But what a serendipitous event that you felt this calling and here's the biggest spiritual gathering on the planet. It feels like fate almost. It was weird. <laughs> it was weird. <laughs> Pretty soon after I landed in Rishikesh, I got really sick. 
like really sick. I found a little tiny ashram where I ended up staying to kind of go through this sickness. That was where I met someone that really changed changed my life, I'd say, for that for that period. And who was that? So that was my soon-to-be boyfriend that I ended up traveling with him for the next about four years. You know, when I met him, I asked him, where do you live? And he said, oh, in between California, India, and like Europe. And I'm like, how do you do that? <laughs> and I, <laughs> I remember, I think I even wrote in my journal that night, I wrote, like, gosh, I could never do that. And, and very soon we were doing it together. Traveling nourished Alicia's spiritual life. The 2010 Kumela gathering Alicia attended witnessed between 40 to 70 million pilgrims. To get a feel of what that experience was like, let's take a walk. Imagine squeezing your way through a sea of people, some draped in vibrant dress, others wearing nothing more than a strip of cloth around their waists devotional prayers, and the thundering of drums accompany the roar of the crowd. Men and women gather along the riverbanks before holy men as they lead day-long rituals. But the most intense aspect of Kumela is bathing in the Ganges River. Some dip their whole bodies into the water, while others fold their hands in prayer before rubbing down their limbs. Shouting, crying, and laughter mingle with the non-stop sound of splashing water. By the end of the festival, it was clear that Alicia was truly experiencing India. She was experiencing different cultures, religions, and ways of life. She discovered the beauty of fully submitting to the journey. But now, Alicia has to discern where she was called next, home or further horizons. How do you think about supporting yourself through maybe extending this trip and traveling with this person? Yeah, you know, I didn't know. And at that time, we we ended up spending about two months together. And then I I went on to Thailand to end my trip. So I didn't know if we were going to have a relationship or not. But very soon, I did need to figure that out. Because I wanted to keep going and I wasn't sure how yet. And so how did you start thinking about that? Um, well, he already had a particular lifestyle, which he introduced me to. This was a quite a popular thing with foreigners who traveled a lot. He would go and trim weed in Northern California. Definitely during that time before legalization, like you could make a ton of money. Trimming. Oh my God. I mean, I was like shocked. Like people basically would work for like two or three months and then travel the whole year on that. And it was, you know, all cash. And after we realized we really had something, he came out to the States and invited me to come up to a trim scene. So I said, okay, I'll go. And then I learned trimming. I learned that whole kind of world. And then I kind of jumped on this train of like this, you know, international circuit. He introduced me to a yoga school that was teaching very beautiful Hatha yoga. And they also taught Tantra. So I ended up traveling with him. We would do a motorcycle ride from Rishikesh to Dharamsala up to Ladakh. We ended up doing that annually for a few years where we would just study. And then eventually we were both teaching together as well. And so you're able to to travel like this because you're doing the trimming for a couple months out of the year and then doing the cycle with him. Eventually, yeah. I mean, as the years went on, I started doing this trimming route. And then we also would teach and make some money teaching, but it wasn't like we made enough to really sustain ourselves in a good way. It was a little bit of money, you know. 
There was even one year when I flew to meet him in India from Thailand, and I had literally one dollar on me. Like I had one dollar. I don't think I had anything in my bank account. I don't remember having anything, and the only cash I had was like one dollar's worth. And I was like, I need help. Like I got nothing. So you're the man. You know, you are going to. I'm going to live off you for a little bit. And he also didn't have much. We just didn't have much at all. So. We thought, God, what are we gonna do? And then we were approached by an Israeli reality TV company. It was so random. They were filming for a reality TV show, and they wanted to do an episode where these divorcee women came to India and learned about tantra, and they were looking for two tantra teachers. So we got paid enough from that one little filming to keep us going for several months. As you're doing this very unique lifestyle, you become less relatable. And as you are keeping in contact with the people that you once knew back wherever home is, and um, their lives are moving in a certain direction, and your life is moving in a certain direction, that can be a tough process to go through. I'm wondering, how are you noticing those, those relationships as you're continuing this lifestyle? And how are you thinking about home? Or is that even what you called it at that point? There is kind of a shadow side of living this quote-unquote dream lifestyle. There were a couple friends that I um, kind of did move away from, and it felt natural because I had really changed a lot. The friends that I had for a longer period of time, who I'd, I'd known since I was 12 and 13 years old, they were able to keep up with my changes more easily because they were used to seeing me go through so many changes. But the friends that kind of needed me to stay the same as they had known me, it didn't work. And that that was hard. There was also a, a culture shock that was happening when I'd be gone in India for six months and then come back. And I just felt like shocked coming back to my own home. It felt so dry. It felt so dull. Like India is so full of life in every corner. Just coming back to, to Orange County, something felt really kind of dead in a way. You're in another world when you enter into that kind of traveling lifestyle. And so while I was also growing spiritually with through yoga, through meditation and tantra and whatever, I was also kind of feeding this sense of spiritual superiority a little bit that had to eventually get knocked down later in life. But I noticed that at some point that it's a danger of the path to separate yourself so much that you don't feel anymore you can relate to your friends and family back home. If you don't have the same lifestyle and like you really truly have different values, that's one thing. But then it's something else to kind of get sucked into another world and lose true friendship or your connection with family. I still keep in touch with my core group of girls. I'm in a daily chat with them. I mean, we talk all the time, but I've just learned to accept like, we've all gone different paths. You know, when you know someone for that long, people go down different routes in their lives. So, but we have this kind of sense of like, you know, deep friendship that is probably always going to be there. I really, truly built a new community, which nourished me in a way I had never felt before. There's like this theory that I have that there's like different kinds of friendships. There's like cactuses and then there's flowers, like certain friendships. You need to water all the time to make sure that they are there. 
And then certain friendships, like you cannot talk to for years and then talk to again and it's fine. Do you have more cactus friendships or flower <laughs> friendships in your That's a in your great life? metaphor. I love it. I have a lot of cactus friendships, I will say. And a lot of that has to do with the experiences we had together. There's certain things that when you go through as a group, you can't ever go back from that. Like the, the experiences I had with certain groups of friends from these adventures, they'll just always be with me. But I have noticed recently because we all sp are spread out throughout the whole world. So we don't see each other, especially after, you know, the pandemic. So I think I do have that fear a little bit. You know, some some friendships will always be there, but some can feel like they might wither away. A lot of people think if you don't talk to someone for a while, that, that relationship is dead. But I think like true friendship, all it takes is just like reaching out once to spark that again. Yeah, I, I think a lot about community, especially like, you know, th with this podcast. Community is everything. And we just, I feel like Amer as Americans, we're so inundated with individualism. Like everything is about making it on your own and who you are as a person and how unique you are. Like we don't realize how much we're missing without having that strong sense of community. Perhaps the most difficult part about the nomadic lifestyle is coming home. As you visit former haunts and past old faces, you realize that it's no longer the foreign that feels strange, but the familiar. Alicia's search for spiritual fulfillment resulted in deeper self-assurance and community that spanned the globe, but it also resulted in a lifestyle and a set of values that no longer fit neatly into the straight edge grid of Orange County. Some of her friendships share a deeply entangled bond that nothing, not time or distance, can pull apart, while others faded away. And maybe that's okay. Maybe you just want to have friends that will be there no matter what. I think it's a matter of focus. And when flying from one place to another, Alicia was focused on her global community. Her friends at home were put on hold until she returned and her thirst for connection was driving her towards those friends. It's a move between different states, a transition, and often transitions overlap. Not only was Alicia rekindling old friendships, but also dipping her toes into entrepreneurship. You know, being in this trim scene so much, it's very um, monotonous work. I started really craving uh, to be creative. I was missing a creative outlet. And that's how it originally started. I just said, I need to like make jewelry. And so I found a fly fishing shop, which sold specialty feathers. And I would go in there and buy a ton of his feathers and then make beautiful feather earrings with it and sell them on Etsy. And I, I chose the name Blonde Vagabond because that was already my name from my blog. And I, I felt some kind of affinity with it. I ended up traveling with my uh, jewelry making kit and all those feathers because in India it was if you could sell one pair of earrings for $20, that could be your whole day's worth of expenses. And so now you had this vehicle by which you could basically travel, you know, forever. As long as there were feathers to be found, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like business, you know, I like having, being a business owner. I mean, it was a very, very small little hobby at the time, but I, I liked that small feeling of empowerment I was beginning to taste just from that. Yeah. So you were in like this period of exploration. Was there a point where like something happened where you're like, oh, maybe this is more than just a little side gig, or maybe this could be something bigger. It came about two years later when I really began to see the results in my shop. 
I first heard about, when I was in India, I heard about a town where it was filled with generation tailors and that you could go there and give some designs and they would whip things up for you. And so I went there in 2013 with 60 US dollars. And so uh, I gave them little tester designs to see how they would do. And the one that got back to me the fastest, that was the easiest to work with, that um, really listened and did the best job is the one I ended up working with even up to today. This seems like, although you love business, this is not just business to make money. This is business to achieve a lifestyle and greater spiritual awakening, it seems like as well. Absolutely right. So for me, my business has always been a means for me to be able to continue my study or my teaching or my um, exploration. So yeah, for that, I'm, I'm super, super grateful for that. You know, after those four years of literally nonstop travel, I, I didn't stay in the same room more than three months over four years. I was constantly moving and it actually had a toll on my nervous system. Even with all the yoga and breath work and pranayama meditation, whatever, I was exhausted. And the boyfriend I was with at the time, he lives at a very fast pace. (laughs) He was a very funny, but like kind of hyper guy. And so I just really couldn't keep up with it anymore. I didn't want to keep up with it anymore. I wanted to land. And so in 2013, the relationship with him ended and then I came back to the US and I just landed for a while. I wasn't sure where to go or what to do. Um, I remember making a mind map kind of thing. I plotted out all the possible options of what I could do and made a numbering system to choose like what's the best option. So, you know, I was functioning already in a very different way than I had been previously. So, you know, different moments in life, I think we have different ways of making decisions and functioning. Four years of nonstop traveling had drained Alicia. Sure, scuba diving off the Andaman Islands, teaching yoga thousands of miles from home, and getting swept into the current of the biggest human gathering in the world, all that was stimulating, but it lacked stability. It lacked a familiarity that she could return to when the pace of life weighed her down. The Blonde Vagabond offered a sweet spot between adventure and stability. It allowed her to escape the bubble of home while building something with long-term potential. Guided by this new vision, Alicia began to switch gears. What are you noticing that your, your life is as you like return to one spot? It's a strange thing because like my parents are here, my brother, my sister, my, my core life is here in so many ways. But by that point, I had already totally given myself over to another world, another lifestyle. And it fit me as a person more. My challenge when I came back was how am I going to integrate everything I just learned, but not be doing this like 365 travel life thing, which wasn't working for me. It's weird. You're caught into this limbo. Yeah, it's a it's a bleak place. So my way of integrating was looking for the things I had been learning and absorbing over in India and Thailand and stuff. And I think I got directed by, through a friend to the Tantric Dance of Feminine Power. It was just such a yes for me. So that became a practice I had here in uh, California that I could always keep close by. Do you feel like that grounded you as you were in this place of limbo? And did you feel like you had connections? I had some from that. I also started going to 
a place called the Goddess Temple, believe it or not, in Orange County. Really? <laughs> in, in an Irvine business district. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. So I started attending like, you know, Sunday church at the Goddess Temple and uh, that was nourishing for me as well. But it's, there's really something about life in America that doesn't lend itself easily to community. When you're like all living in Rishikesh together in a small little village in India and you, you go to have lunch and you run into five friends you know. And then you go to take dip in the river and you see your friend you were just sitting with earlier. And I longed for that. And that longing ended up taking me to work at Harbin Hot Springs in Northern California. So that's a clothing optional hot spring resort. And uh, yeah, it fulfilled a need I had to still be in community, to be in nature, to nourish that part of my soul, which was opening through all of these practices and also be in a business owner. And so alongside of living and working at this retreat community, I was feeding Bon Vagabond and my Etsy shop. And it was in 2015 that suddenly my sales started just skyrocketing really picking up. I love that. And also just like a note on the the clothing optional communities. If we're to look at like cactus relationship, I think that the core of those relationships is just vulnerability. Someone's ability to be naked in front of another person is a really good proxy for vulnerability. Also like a note is like all kinds of people are in these communities. Like you have uh, Silicon Valley like CEOs and founders, and then you have hippies living out of their van. And so as you're building this company in line with finding this community, are those two separate identities or are those like mingling together in any way? And do you feel your, your life becoming maybe more coherent? Yeah, I was absolutely working towards that coherency. And so I think my time at Harbin Hot Springs was like the kind of melding where I could finally see, oh, look, I can live in America. I can have a business that I love that keeps me connected to India. And yeah, you could just talk to people in a deeper way. And I think more interesting conversations could come up. And Harbin really had that magic. Making friends all over the world taught Alicia to value vulnerability in relationships. Perhaps this is why she felt at home in the nudist resort. By standing uncovered before someone, letting someone examine your every flaw and every scar, you're essentially saying, I trust you with all of me. Sure, trust is risky, but if you want the roots of a relationship to grow past the surface into the soil of sincerity and intimacy, you must first fertilize it with trust. This new community Alicia found combined the novelty she got from traveling with a sense of belonging. It proved that meaningful relationships can thrive anywhere, in an international crowd abroad or back in the States. And that is what drives her till this day. And as her sense of belonging grew, her sales at her small business skyrocketed. My business was growing and it was the first time in my life that I had my own business that was actually successful. And I was able to li eventually live off of it to the point where I even formally quit my job at Harbin Hot Springs. Um, so I was still close and connected to the community, but I formally left as an employee. And I actually chose to go on a two-month trip to Brazil to continue in some spiritual study. And it was two weeks into my trip that 
the Valley Fire happened. Experts call it a monstrous fire of historic proportions, a stunning number of homes lost in the Valley Fire in tonight. The governor has declared a state of emergency in both Lake and Napa counties. Good evening, I'm Brian Hecht. I woke up in the morning and I went to go have breakfast at this little camp I was staying at. And one of my friends from that community came up to me and he said, Alicia, I think Harbin burned down last night. And I ran, I ran to the computer and I saw that it was true. I didn't know if I had a home still. I didn't know if Harbin was still standing. It just, it was, for a few days, it was just totally crazy and unclear. And then after four days, my, um, I had a roommate. She was able to confirm that the house had been burned down. And what was gone? Like, like what was actually destroyed? Inside the house was my, I had just restocked my merchandise. My sister went back to the scene to go and kind of collect things. And she found that there was a storage shed just outside the house that had, was completely untouched. And in it was my box of all my life's work worth of journals. So that was like a very strange and wonderful feeling. Like, wow, that part of me is still here. The other thing she found in the ashes, which was just phenomenal, was a statue of Kali, who had become a, a very dear goddess to me by this point, and she is the goddess of destruction. And in a way, she's there to remind you that when you lose it all, you can still be okay. She And she does take away things in your life that are not meant for you. That's a part of her energy. But then she's also there to remind you, you are still okay without this, without this identity or without this, you know, without your business or without a home. Like, you can be okay. And I really lived that. And that was probably like a very surprising gift of that whole experience is realizing that, holy shit, I just literally had like this crazy you know, experience, and I'm actually okay. You know, it's gonna be a little bit of a mess to clean up for a while, but I'm okay. But I would say, I wanna also add in, the hardest part was losing my Hot Springs community. It was a beautiful community of people and the entire, almost the entire place burned down overnight. Um, and that, that feeling of just like sudden, suddenly there's nothing. That was a, my first experience of losing community overnight. And that was quite disorienting. So losing everything, all the material trappings of your identity overnight, who did you decide you wanted to be going forward? <sighs> I think it gave me a depth of appreciation that I didn't have before. And then I think I just kind of put one foot over the other and I relied on friends and friendships and family to kind of help me stand on my feet again. And thank God I, I could just make the same clothes and they were still selling. So the next year I was able to pick up the business again. With the business picking back up and, and you picking your life back up, like what was there like a a proudest moment um, for the business and, and for yourself, like leading up to present day? I think my proudest moment is finally making the switch over to full eco-friendly and sustainable fabrics. 
I would say like my official like real launch of it feels like it was more last year, but I slowly was kind of testing the waters of like, how is this going to work with like these fabrics and what's going to be different? And that made me feel so good because it kind of was weighing on me over time because I knew some of the stories that I'd heard in India about the cotton farmers and stuff like that. It's just, it just had weight on me for a really long time. I really wanted to go sustainable. So I feel really happy that I finally did that. And what was the reception um, after doing that? At first I was selling at like kind of uh, markets in LA. And I noticed that the girls were going really crazy over it. <laughs> and they were like, you know, fighting over pieces and like, cause everything is one of a kind. And so it was like, that's when I started seeing like, oh, I think I really have something here. And also it's really good to sell in person at markets. So you hear feedback, you hear, oh, I wish this had pockets or I wish the sleeves weren't so big or I wish this was longer or shorter. And then I could kind of tweak my designs from that. So then by 2020, I felt really clear about what I wanted to make and 2021 would have been the like actual launch. And uh, it was really well received and it's been fun too. That's I think the best part is like, everything is different. So I'm always seeing something new and it's really fun to see friends like trying things on. And it's, it's put me back in a place I haven't been since I was like a kid, you know, like playing dress up and trying different colors. And it's been fun, surprisingly really fun. So I think that's my, my proudest, my proudest moment for Blonde Vagabond. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, it's great being in a place of of it being fun because like being it being fun means that it's sustainable right like as long as you're having fun doing something then you're going to be able to do it for as long as you want yes and so leading up today we're, we're here now what are you working on today what are you most excited about um what are you most excited for going forward like tell me what you have going on well i'm really excited about this year for blonde vagabond I feel really good about my business. Um, I'm really excited about the designs. I'm really happy with how everything's coming out. It's so I feel like I have a good feeling, you know, I feel like, oh, this is going to be a good year and I'm making really nice connections through it, like wholesale connections and friend, uh, customers and going to the markets or festivals. And so I feel like, I feel like I can really, I can play almost, you know, I feel like this is a business I'm going to have fun with. Um, I also feel glad that I'm really clear now that like, I'm not trying to make like the next free people. I'm not trying to make this crazy, huge brand that's going to take over my life. I just want something big enough that it sustains me and that it's nourishing. And that, in fact, I don't want it too big because I have other things going on. Now I have a women's retreat I'm hosting next month in Mexico and had a book come out and love different things here and there, do my coaching and stuff, a women's group online. So yeah, I, I always want to have time for that. The things that really nourish me like on a deeper level and like the areas that I'm just fascinated with. Looking back at, at your life story um, and looking back at that, I feel like that key inflection point where um, you were you know, coming out of college, questioning whether is this the right life for me and deciding I'm going to take this trip. Um, what advice would you have given that person, uh, that younger self? First and foremost, I say, trust your gut, trust your longing, 
if something keeps coming back, it's something you really want to do, just do it and trust it and make a leap. And don't be afraid to make the leap. Connect with like spirit in whatever way that works for you and keep that as your partner. Keep that there as your guide. You know, reference it and check in and ask and and uh, feed that relationship because that I think is what really helped me, honestly. I would say don't look back. Don't worry. Let your identity fall. Let all your identities fall and then be built anew. Really absorb the beauty along the way and savor the moments that you'll, you'll never live again in the same way. Enjoy the moments. I think that's something that Alicia has optimized for most of her life. She constantly is checking in and asking, am I experiencing this moment? Am I enjoying it? Checking in with this mantra allowed her to start her travels around the world, fall in love with India, even start her business. You could say she's living the dream, but the dark side of living the dream is that not many people share it or even can imagine it. Living your truth so brilliantly can push people away, can even cause people to try to stamp out your light. Maybe you don't have as much in common with the friends back home, but that's okay. Don't let it deter you from that dream. Alicia strives to enjoy every moment and make her dream her reality. So if you want a bit of that, the first step is simple. Dream big and dream bold. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our Chief of Staff and Operations is Jessica Lin. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Burkle, Matt Fernandez, Renee B. Cannon, Sophia Donner, Maura Lynch, Zoe Maddox, Ashley Jimenez, Michael Chung, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Luis Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibada Thrive, and Mecca Shelton. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Abigail Asherdia, Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz, and Sanessa Gisley. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dane, Jonathan Wass, and Diana Marie Candazza. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.